the funny thing is, um, in terms of editing the podcast, right, I have episodes 2, 3, 4, 5 all edited. Actually, uh, two, 5 is this episode, sorry. So, 2 and 3 were yes. edited by my sister. Ha ha ha. And then 4, I actually edited right after, right after we recorded last week. <laughs> right, yep. Yeah, but then because 2 and 3, um, I have not finished listening through them. To make show notes. Ah. So after this episode, yep. right? Episodes two, three, four, five are gonna go out in quick succession in quick succession. Fair so, enough. I don't think anyone really cares. Yes, so. same, agreed. Um, <laughs> the um yeah, the advantages of starting a podcast that nobody listens to uh yet, hopefully, but whatever. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, this week um, well, last week, I think I mentioned that I was doing the CS50 course, right? Um, yep, yep. Yeah, so last week when I was talking about it, I had only listened to week zero. Um, yes. And I, I don't know if this is a thing like to start at week zero. I'm Because week zero is actually full of material already. So I have no idea like if that is a Harvard thing to count week zero as like a a tester week where you drop into classes um, before you're sure whether you want to take them. And then... Yes, I think so. So, uh, I I mean, from from my experience with Yale at the very least, right? week zero is considered uh, shopping week. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, you know, because you're not sure if you want to take the class, so you just drop in. That kind of makes sense because week zero, right? Mm. My feeling about it was um, it went through very you know what kind of what you would expect for the most part of a of a first week um of com science and then the assignment at the end was uh, scratch so i actually skipped a whole 30 minute chunk at the end where the professor was right. demonstrating like this is how you use scratch because to me um because i'm not coming to this course with zero experience right i have i have some background right. and so i was like ah i you know, Scratch is clearly something that's designed to have the the rigor, in a sense, of um, designing an algorithm, right? Um, but mm-hmm. without knowing that it's a it's a graphical it's a graphical um, it's I I don't know how you I don't know how it's technically described, right? But it's a graphical approach to programming. So it, if you remember, like, oh, is, that, um, right. oh, is it what click and drag or is it? Yeah. If you remember, I've like never legal, used Scratch before, so yeah. If you remember, like Lego Mindstorms, right? Uh-huh, yeah, um, yeah. Where you have the different yeah. blocks. So the the mm-hmm. I don't know if there is another way to initialize um, the program, but I, which I probably would have known if I had paid attention to the class. But um, basically, you <laughs> start your program by clicking a green flag, and then you have an event trigger when green flag clicked, and then. Um, there are other possible event triggers as well. So it's like you can drag sprites onto the board and then you can say when you click on this sprite, this is what, this is, you know, perform this action. So you have your event oh. triggers, which behave like event triggers in, uh, um, actually, in this respect, because the languages that I have the most, the language that by far that I have the most experience in is PHP. But also that was PHP mm-hmm. 4. Right. Because I have not been programming for like over 15 years now. I have not touched PHP in years as well. Yeah. Heavens. So like I actually, 
I mean, this is the, a different story, but I set up um, a small like Linode server this today, uh, today mm. yesterday, this week, to kind of play around with PHP again. And I was like, using just the f- syntax that I was very familiar with. And then I was like, how come this doesn't work? And it's literally been deprecated. So... Oh. oh. <laughs> well, anyway. I mean, this is, this is a common experience of most programmers, right? You yeah. Know, using I mean, R, R changes extremely quickly. Interesting. Uh, in fact... You know, between, I think, our last episode, or between when we started this and our current episode, R right. has gone through one update. And right, it's a right. pretty major one as well. Uh, right. Just to digress a bit, the the one big change, I think I, I've been sort of only casually following this, but um, when R ingests data, okay. right, I think it automatically treats all... Uh, hang on. It, treated, it treats factors as strings. Okay. So if I have factor levels one, two, three, four, five, okay, it would treat it as a series of five strings. Okay. And so I... if I want to convert my raw data from a string to a factor, I have to use the separate function strings as factors. I think that's been okay. changed now, right? Right. Uh, because a lot of people complain about it. I mean, if I, I'm not familiar with R, but it seems like you know, if mm. that's a common operation to 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 perform, then. At some point, mm. you'll be like, yeah, you know, let's either, either make it dynamic or let's just not have this restriction. I, I might be getting it wrong, but basically, you know, this is, this is I think, I, I, I've had this problem before, but I can't quite remember exactly the specifics. But basically, when you import a table into R, it will, you know, look through the data. And if you don't specify your data type, it will automatically default it to a specific data type. And that can be pretty frustrating. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, yeah. never anyway. used R, never touched it, so... Uh, hmm. I'm just thinking about that from a purely abstract point of view. Um, mm-hmm. Although, okay, so on the one hand, it's it's hard for me to say whether it's whether the PHP stuff didn't work because it was deprecated or because actually this is another thing, right? Because PHP is server side, uh, and so mm-hmm. different servers have different configurations, and the yes. the server that I grew up learning on had a specific configuration, which I realize now is not mm-hmm. common. Um, oh, yeah. okay. Um, or maybe it was common at the time and now it's considered bad practice. So it, mm. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it had, among other things, like I think like any variable you declared was declared globally. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Oh, if I am not mistaken, huh. at least, I think, I think that was true. I don't, I actually don't know if PHP has a setting. The other thing it does is that it displays errors which is considered bad practice in a production environment. So I also learned yesterday where the huh. error log is on a on an Apache server. Okay. Um, yep. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that kind of yeah. stuff. It was, it was just a very basic, like, hello world, standard modified hello world program, right? It takes an input and then it says, like, mm, hello, okay. your name here. Anyway, um, going back yeah. to Scratch, right? So it has the events. Um, okay. So I don't know if... Like, the way PHP works, I don't know if it has, like, natural event triggers. Um, but anyway, that aside, um, so, I mean, that's something that I recognize, actually, from Visual Basic, which was even longer ago, like, 20 years ago. Um, and then you have actions, which are, of course, functions. Then you have variables, which are variables. There's no other name to call them. Then you have uh, expressions, so expressions mm-hmm. will be things like your conditionals, right? Or, or the things that go in conditionals. Mm. So it's like, you know, if 
this expression is true, then you do this. If this expression is false, then you do that, that kind of thing. Then, yep. of course, you have control yep. flow. So your ifs and your loops and so on and so forth. Uh, conditionals and loops, basically. is control flow. Okay. So okay. there are all so these different types. Is wiles and force. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So there are all these different types okay. of blocks in Scratch. And then you drag mm -hmm. and drop them. And the assignment, origin, the original assignment is like, it's very freeform. So it just says you need to have X number of sprites. You need to have X number of different um, scripts. Scripts are, effect are effectively things that um, are triggered by an event. And then, okay. you know, stuff happens, right? Right, yeah. yeah and then yeah. you need to have at least one loop, at least one conditional. And uh, I can't remember what else it was. Then it just said, like, okay, you know, just just do something. You can do whatever you want. And then you submit the problem set. And then at first, when I was mm -hmm. watching the class, right, my intention wasn't necessarily to do the problem sets. Um, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and, like, decide what my level of engagement is going to be. And then with the scratch stuff, sure. I was like, heck, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to do it, right? So when I went on to the following class, the next class is C. So it's very basic. Oh, like wow. It's okay. your standard, like, hello world, how to take an input from C, how to, um, mm. I mean, hello world is how to give an output, really. So like yes. that's kind of like your first two yes. things, right, in any programming language, how to give an output and then how to take an input. I have... I remember we learned C in what, primary 5, when we were 11 or 12, 12, 11, 10, I can't even remember. We, no, we started with Visual Basic in school. It's it's hard to say. I don't remember learning Visual then Basic HTML. in school, to be, to be honest. Really? I, yeah, I don't remember. I still have basic. the notes in my That's cupboard funny. somewhere. Yeah, I don't remember learning Visual Basic uh, in school. I know we did Visual Basic, and I know we did HTML. We never did CSS, we never did PHP. Yes. We didn't do any databasing, but we no. did go through a very brief... C course, uh, that most is of which I've completely yes. forgotten. Yeah, uh, I I feel like we probably did do a C course, but I have no clear recollection of it. I do know we did, <laughs> at least I did. Like, I don't remember if, uh, because I think that was a computer club thing, not a, okay. not a, not a like a academic thing. Um, uh, gen yeah, yeah. I think I definitely remember doing. A Java course. It was like two days. Oh, jeez. Three days. Yeah, and I have actually no. I remember going to the class. I remember that it was at Tamasic Secondary. I remember the okay. classroom. Okay. Uh, I don't remember any anything about Java. And um, yeah, I think that was about it. Honestly, huh. so. The thing about, okay, so obviously for all these classes, right, uh, there is a kind of dichotomy between teaching you to learn the language, right, teaching you how to use the mm -hmm. language, and also teaching computer science. And these are two different things. Yes. Right? That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. and I think this is a dichotomy. I've that... never learned the computer science element of it, I think. Right. I've only been really sort of on, more on the application. I mean, the only other language I remember learning formally at least, well, this this was a, I can't even remember if this was something I, I, I was taught as part of a class or some something I went deeper into because um, back when Flash was a thing. Oh my God. For yeah. our much younger action users script. who don't remember, or listeners who don't remember, not, not even action script. I learned Lingo, which is, I think, right, based right, off right. Pascal. Right, right. Right, and Lingo, I think, allowed you to write 
fairly complex functions Wait, I'm mixing for Flash. Up, I, something. I think I'm mixing up action script. Action script, I know. Action script, I think it was the was the ASP version of JavaScript. Or I could have that completely wrong. I don't. I do not remember. I remember action script being something linked to Macromedia as well. But, but ah, I, right. Okay. Yeah, no, it's it's used in oh, Adobe Director. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And for yeah. shockwave content, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I, I remember reading up about Lingo and learning a little bit of it, and then you know, uh, looking. I mean, the only reason why I know it's based off Pascal is because I actually read into the literature a little bit, and right. I've completely forgotten everything. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think is a pretty good illustration of how technologies that were once very hot can completely disappear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the fact that COBOL is making a comeback now shows how some things can return I don't think, in I, dramatic fashion too. I mean, I don't think COBOL is one of those those things that just never died. It just went, <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's like one of those like languages that you, to 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 tie it to you know something conservation related. Like it's never quite extinct, and then every now right. and then there is like a small flowering of of COBOL. Um, <laughs> Like during a financial crisis when all these uh, payroll systems have to be updated. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> the thing about C is, for me at least, it's, it's something that, you know, you pick up here and there, like every now and then, because mm-hmm. just about every intro to ComScience thing will make you do a bit of C. Actually, I don't know how true that is anymore um, because I think a lot of ComScience programs have switched to using Java or JavaScript as the basis. Yes. Or Python, yes, actually, like for most that matter. Of my friends, Python, yes. Python has yeah. rapidly become sort of the uh, de facto yeah. language of, of choice. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's very hard to get around... Um, it's very hard to get around, you know, not knowing C because... Okay, right. this, is, this, is, this is very challenging, actually, because... Um, I have no idea how much work is actually done in C these days, but it's mm-hmm. not, you know, far more work probably is done in uh, PHP, it's done in React, it's done in like Node.js, whatever. Um, when Do people even still use PHP? I, I hardly ever encounter PHP. PHP is still, is still used, yes. Um, okay. I mean, it has, its, it has its flaws, obviously, but mm-hmm. what is interesting about php is that it's extremely forgiving which we'll we'll get to <laughs> we'll we'll get to later but i think there is an, an argument to kind of be made for c being like the latin of programming languages which yeah, is the classic that, yeah it's the classic the classical language <laughs> it's unwieldy in a lot of ways but <laughs> for any programmer of a certain like experience level it's kind of default it, it is the kind of default basis of communication, not necess- not necessarily actually in code, but in concepts. Right. right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I I think ultimately, when you look at like all the modern, I mean, so many languages are built ultimately on a framework of C, that if you have a working understanding of it, like you arguably can say that okay. Um, this is like C in these ways and not like C in those ways, right? Whereas you wouldn't right. necessarily want yep. to use like PHP or or um, JavaScript as the basis for making that comparison. Right? Mm-hmm. 
which then brings yep. me yep. which then brings me to the fact that okay one of the one of the um, things about C is that it is a lower level language than most working languages today and yes. by lower level right what it means is that the abstractions that you are given are low I mean we talked about abstractions last week but the mm-hmm. level of abstraction that you operate at is a bit lower than uh, than in uh, you know uh, a language like JavaScript or, or, or PHP so um, what that means is so this is something that I had read about or heard about but never actually had to deal with because in PHP you never have to worry about this but um, memory allocation um, right yeah and I think the funny thing is I think in Objective-C I remember reading about Objective-C in garbage collection uh, which is a term mm-hmm. yep. for yep. cleaning up memory that you have stopped using yes. but you as a programmer have forgotten to free up, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I think in week two it's uh week no because we start at week zero right week zero is scratch week one is C week two is arrays week three okay. is algorithms and then week four is oh, wow. uh week four is memory. So week four is when you encounter malloc memory allocation for the first time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is uh, this is a it's a C function that literally allows you to um, allocate memory, and then it will return a pointer to that memory, right? You don't. I mean, it doesn't. It's not a variable, right? It's a pointer. So a variable yep. Yep. is you know it contains a value, right? But a pointer yes. is a is an address to that value. And the reason why malloc yes. returns a pointer is because you literally haven't put anything in that memory yet. Mm-hmm. Right? It contains yep. stuff yep. Um, because, like, the physical memory might contain stuff on it. But it's not stuff that mm-hmm. you have put there. Right? The program yes. is setting yep. aside memory for you to use. And then you can then put stuff in it if you want. But, yeah. So... See, I've never used programming to that high a level where I have to that lower think level memory allocation. But what? Well, yeah, well, fair <laughs> enough. I, yeah. I, I mean, doesn't Java have a similar problem as well? Because I remember having well, I, I back in the days when I was in the army, you know, we we were working with applications that had that were written in Java, and there were problems with you know trash collection issues that I, I can recall from all that time in the past. But yeah. Yeah, so I I have never worked with Java, so I can't really speak to that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Which I think tells yeah, you. I don't know, I don't know Java. It you know tells the listener like we're we're two people who have done programming but are not programmers. <laughs> I, I think is no, we're not. Pro- I do not consider myself a programmer. Yeah, is is the appropriate... I consider myself someone who knows programming for very applied purposes, and you know beyond that, <laughs> I, I'm know someone who knows programming for teenage hobbyist purposes. How about that? <laughs> like I mean, like that is the extent you know, I, of my programming. Uh, yeah, experience, I, really. I program because I need to write you know software to get yep. stuff done, and that's it. And I mean, not I, not software. No, software is putting it too far. <laughs> I write code to write small scripts to yep. get you know things done. That's about it. Yeah, and so the thing about um the thing about malloc right is that when you have mm-hmm. allocated the memory, you must then free it right. And uh, the yes. other thing about um, the other thing about being able to work directly with memory is that it then allows you to uh, potentially access parts of the memory that are not allocated to you 
by the computer, right? Because right. if you have a pointer and you have, you know, um, the ability to read within that pointer, or not that that point, but yeah, okay, an array is a pointer, right? So if you have a, mm -hmm. a pointer and then you're like, hey, read X element of this array, but this array has only X minus one elements, yes. right? Then what you're effectively doing is your program is trying to read outside of the memory that has been given to you the program to work with, right? And then okay. Okay. Um, you kind of potentially get segmentation fault, right? Right. So this is you like... See, okay, I've encountered segmentation faults more than my fair share of times uh -huh. because I write bad code. Uh -huh. But the problem is I've never quite understood right. the basis of segmentation faults. Right. So the thing is, I've never encountered a segmentation fault. I've only heard of it, um, but okay. I've never encountered it because PHP completely protects you from them. Is that <laughs> right? You cannot get huh. a segmentation fault in PHP. I mean, you. I, I, I imagine you can, but... Um, so actually, two episodes ago on Accidental Tech Podcast... Um, John Syracuse addressed mm -hmm. this because uh, there was a there was a question that came in from um, a user a, a user a listener. It was a question that came in from a listener that said um, it was addressed to Marco Arment who writes uh, who release makes Overcast the podcast app, mm -hmm. and that podcast app has an iOS um, ver there is an iOS Overcast there is an Apple Watch. Overcast, and there is also a oh, web. I mean, okay. Yeah, there is also a web uh, version of Overcast, but mm -hmm. what he has—I mean, you can log on to your Overcast account, and you can listen to podcasts there. You can like upload stuff that you want to listen to in Overcast later because Overcast has its own audio engine. So, um, you know, if you you might have some non-podcast stuff or podcasts that are not mm -hmm. from the app that you might want to. Listen to in Overcast regardless. Anyway, so um, yeah. he has this web um, layer that's actually, it's actually um, handling a lot of the server-side functions, right? So right. it's actually, the reason that he has the website, right, is it's, you know, it's doing things like checking podcast feeds, it's pulling data, right? It's like downloading um, podcasts, um, onto mm -hmm. his own server. It's like caching the podcasts, whatever. It's also, there's also an element of like making sure that the pod, um, you know, if you have multiple phones um, or you have the phone and you have the watch that it's synced and you can't just sync the, you know, what podcasts are available, but you also want to sync the listening position and things like that. So yeah, that's why Marco Armin has the server, um, has, the, has the back end basically. And so there was a question mm -hmm. that basically yeah. said, okay, um, Marco, like, basically imagine that PHP is not usable um, tomorrow, right? What language would you rewrite your backend in? And Marco Armin <laughs> was kind of like, uh, but, you know, how does PHP become not usable? It's open source. Surely someone will step in and fork it and maintain it and blah, 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 blah. And John Syracuse was like, Nope, you know what he means, right? <laughs> like, give give the man an answer. And um, of course, like, I don't. You know, would I even need a backend? Because originally, the 
the purpose of it was to solve the sync problem. But now iCloud Sync is very reliable, and maybe I wouldn't even need a backend. I would just use an API call to to iCloud. Oh, and, such dodging. Yeah, and John Syracuse was like, what? Like, what language would you use, right? <laughs> so his backend is written in PHP. Um, okay. Which, again, is not a perfect language by any means, but it's a very forgiving one. And so they had this mm. long discussion, right? And I think his answer, I think his answer was... Swift or Python, if I'm not mis, if I don't remember correct, I mean if I remember correctly, right? But then you know mm-hmm. they had this. It's called Accidental Tech Podcast, right? So they had this discussion <laughs> about like what are the pros and cons and all the blah 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 of these languages. And mm-hmm. um, John Syracuse, who writes professionally in Perl, remember oh, Perl? Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, oh, Perl, I mean, I, I okay. I, I'm going to be honest here. I like Perl. But that's uh-huh. because I don't use Perl as a <laughs> functional language. I use Perl sort of in snippets when I'm writing bash scripts. That's right, it. right. Yeah, so... So um, I've never had to grapple with the horror that I've heard is Perl. Yeah. So I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> John Syracuse, he... I mean, podcasting is not his day job. He has a day job right. writing, uh, writing code for a healthcare company. And... Oh. They use Paul at work. Oh, God. So, yeah, but, <laughs> but you know, John Syracuse was extolling the virtues of the three P languages, Perl, Python, PHP. And okay, okay. the reason he was like, yeah, he was like, the, the reason, right, that these three, um, you know, are so favored, right, uh, despite all their faults, is that if you get a segmentation fault, it's not your fault. <laughs> He's like, if you get a segmentation fault in one of these, writing in one of these three languages, somebody else screwed up, not you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. That's fascinating. That, so can I blame all of my sec faults, <laughs> all the sec faults I encounter on, on other people? I mean, no, it depends no, on no, which language... Depends Hang on, on which no, language. No, because I'm not writing the code. I'm using other people's code. Well, then, then yeah, In by default, settings. it's not your fault. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's... It could be the parameters I use that are causing the segmentation faults. Well, then know. that's bad error handling. That's somebody who didn't think about... Mm. You know, that's somebody who oh, didn't think about... Oh, welcome to bioinformatics. <laughs> welcome to working with, you know software written by PhD students. I mean, this is no disrespect to PhD students, but many of us who write code are not professional coders. Yep. So, uh, and speaking from personal, you know, as someone who has written scripts before, commenting is all over the place. Mm-hmm, uh, yep. You know, error handling is terrible. I once had an error message that said, um, you're on your own, buddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is, is, is not only unhelpful, but it doesn't even tell you where the problem is, you know, at least if yeah. there's some kind of indication as to where the problem is, I can go in and and try and troubleshoot. But it's like, <laughs> I mean, on you that know, no details whatsoever. On that note, so this is a this is a two parter kind of thing. So I have been um, unable to open Twitter on mobile Safari for a while, and I don't know what the problem huh. is. But literally every time I open the Twitter link. On mobile Safari, it just says something went wrong. Try again. That's oh, literally geez. all it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, and okay, so that's one aspect of it. The other part of it is, 
So at my work, okay, there is a very annoying error message that says, oops, something went wrong. Please check your internet connection and refresh the page or something like that. Okay. okay. And this is infuriating because it is the default something went wrong error where yep. it's the default like catch-all error handler. And <laughs> when somebody says like, I ran into this error while using your software, I have no idea what it is. Okay, so I, I will try right. and be... I will try and be like, okay, can you please describe exactly what you were doing before you saw the error? Um, mm. But that information is often not forthcoming or they'll be very vague about it. And I mean, it's understandable because like they are not there to fix your software problems, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And the... The thing about it that I intensely dislike, okay, is the fact that it says, please check your internet connection. And <laughs> invariably, when they email, right, with this problem, they'll be like, my internet connection is fine. I'm like, yeah, I know your internet connection is fine, but... <laughs> Um, I, I, I mean, th this does speak to the, you know, the challenges of troubleshooting, right? Yes. Troubleshooting is by no means easy, uh, you know, and they, they tell you, you know, when you start writing code for solving biological problems that half your time, maybe even more than that, will be spent on Google and Stack Exchange. Mm, yep. But it, it does really show you the sort of the extent to which, you know, trying to solve these issues is a bloody pain in the ass. Yep. Yeah. On the best of days. <laughs> so the thing about um, the thing about segmentation faults, right? Mm -hmm. um, they always, they always, when when you hear about them as somebody who has never encountered one, it always makes it sound like oh, it's this like big conspiracy by C in your computer's memory to make sure your program doesn't <laughs> work and stuff like that. And yes. um, yeah, so I encountered my first segmentation fault in. Uh, what must be a time-honored tradition of um, beginning C programmers. Um, <laughs> and uh, in the time-honored tradition of segmentation faults by beginning C programmers, um, I encountered it by dereferencing a null pointer. And um, Right. Yes. And okay, so to I, did that sentence make any sense to you? To some extent. I, okay. I, I know s scraps of this. Okay. So, in, in, okay, just broadly speaking, right? In computing, you have a variable. A variable is when you have, you know, it's like math, right? When you have X and then mm -hmm. X has a Equals value, something. right? And then yeah. this value is stored in your computer's memory. So, mm -hmm. somewhere on your computer's memory is this variable X, but how does the computer know where to find it? Right, so mm. every um, you know, basically all the addressable bits of your computer's memory, right, has have an mm -hmm. have an address, right. Yes. And so the pointer, okay, a pointer is not a variable itself; it's the address to the pointer, right. And so yes. it's kind of yep. I mean, in in the world of like analogies, right, the variable is like the building. And the address <laughs> is the address. The pointer is the address, right? It tells people where well, to find the, this the, building. The, the building is the container, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a sense, yes. If you want to, yeah, if you want to put yeah. it that way, yeah. 
And so here's the thing. Yeah. If you want to declare a pointer, mm-hmm. you can't just declare a pointer, right? Because yeah. you, you're, you're, you can't just say, uh, hey, I have an address. But that address doesn't... It, you, you can't have an address that doesn't go anywhere, right? Yes. So, yep. but, how, yeah. but you may not know the address yet. At this, you know, at that point in your in your program, right? And so, yeah. what you do is you point this address to null, right? So you <laughs> declare yeah. this pointer, and then you equal you assign it the value null, and this indicates yes. to the computer that I've declared this pointer, but I don't have an address to point it to yet, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now. When you are recording, all right, at some point, you will want to make that value, that address, um, ha- you want to make that pointer have an address to point to, right? Yes. And once you have, once it has an address to point to, you want to use that address. All of this yes. makes sense, right? So, mm-hmm. you don't want to use just the address, you want to use what is stored at that address. And to do that, mm-hmm. You do it by dereferencing the pointer. The pointer is a reference. When you dereference a pointer, you get the value that's at the address, not just the address itself. Okay. Okay. So yep. if yep. if at you know if at bit O X you know zero X zero two or whatever, um, which mm-hmm. is a tiny like that's a tiny stick of memory. But well, well, you get my point. Okay. <laughs> if if you know if at like address one, let's just make it up. Okay. If at address one, the yeah. variable, the yeah. the value that's stored there is five, right? Then mm-hmm. um, you have a pointer that points to address one, right? Yeah. If you call the pointer x, let's say, if you call the x pointer, mm-hmm. it will tell you one. If you dereference the X pointer, it will tell you five. Yes. Right? Okay. Okay. Yep. So dereference dereferencing a null pointer just means you try to get the value of a of a pointer that was pointing to nothing. Null. Yeah. And literally yep. it just says segmentation fault and it quits. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> but does it at least tell you the segmentation fault and what the segmentation what caused segmentation fault? No. Oh jeez. Yeah, this is um, I mean this is the thing that annoys me a lot about vague error messages. Yeah. And seg faults are one of one one of the you know that huge category where very often the seg fault is not explained, right? Yeah. No one doesn't tell you what caused it. Which is so annoying. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember which which program it was that I was doing which problem set I was doing that produced this um sec fault. Um right. and I don't remember exactly what it was, but I found it uh relatively quickly actually because I knew which part of my code was iffy. So I ran through a okay, debugger okay. and I just had mm-hmm. it stop yep. like where I thought yep. the start of the iffy code was and I just stepped through one by one. And mm-hmm. the yep. line that seemed to be producing the sec fault was actually uh scanf. Which to me right, was okay. unbelievable, um, <laughs> because I was like, scanf isn't that like a function that everybody and his grandma, you know, uses all the time? Like, so what CS50 does is that um, they give you um, a CS50 library, CS50.h, mm-hmm. which they describe as training wheels. 
So right, okay. Yeah. So in weeks zero to three, instead of using um, scanf, they actually mm-hmm. write functions for you called um, get int, get string, get char, mm-hmm. and so on. And what it does is that it prompts the user for input, and it does error handling of that input as well. So if you say like, oh wow, you know, get int, and then the user types ABC, it will prompt the user again. Yep. Right? Whereas you would normally okay, do okay, all okay. the error handling yourself. Yeah. Yes. And yep. that oh, is... that's amazing, actually. Yeah. That's actually... That's really training wheels here. Yeah. It's a very well thought through progression to be like, mm-hmm. you know, here's... We, we don't want you to get distracted by things that you are not yet learning about. And so mm-hmm. we will give you these training wheels and then at some point we'll take them off and explain what the code has been doing under the hood all this time. So week four is... Okay. Okay. So week four literally began with a professor walking on stage with a pair of training wheels attached to his ankles. <laughs> and then he sat down and he's like, this week is when we take the training wheels off. And then he... And he took the training wheels off. And then he tried to take the training wheels off. And then he's like struggling with it. And he's like, this is a little harder than I expected. <laughs> um, which of course kind of didn't bode well um, and then for some bizarre reason right after he took the training wheels off he left them in the middle of the stage and the whole nearly two hour lecture he's just walking back and forth across the stage and he just keeps stepping over the training wheels but not once he actually trip on them which is amazing <laughs> I'm just like, dude, why don't you just Very good spatial the... awareness. Yeah. Very good stage. I must have done theatre before. Uh, it's very possible. <laughs> but I think, again, I, I mean, if you, if you watch his lectures, he's been doing this for years. It's super right. practiced. Um, mm-hmm. So, going back to, <laughs> going back to the, the segmentation fault thing, right? Yeah. Um, this is where I kind of... Okay, so, when you are a kid learning C and you don't have something like a CS50 library, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if scanf sounds familiar to you. I've never used scanf before. Okay. So what scanf yeah. does is that it looks at the user's input um, mm-hmm. and it puts that input into... Okay, I was going to... It puts that input um, into a variable, let's say. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm of the data type that you specify. So you might say like, hello oh, world, okay. you know, yeah, hello world, um, or, you know, like, what is your name? And then you might use scanf right. to put that information into a variable. And then as a kid, right, they might tell you, this is the syntax, just follow it and then substitute the name of your variable. Mm-hmm. But um, what scanf actually does right is it doesn't take the the argument that scanf takes right is not a variable name it's a pointer okay oh oh what what okay yes scanf does not take a variable name it takes a pointer which is why like again as a kid they just show you the syntax and then they're like just put your variable name here and you proceed with it at with an end so if your variable mm-hmm. is x, you have to type n ampersand x, mm-hmm. which yeah. to yeah. me as a kid, I was just like, oh, it's some C thing. Right? Just do it, right? Yeah. Just do it. It's and a quirk of the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, when I was looking at the documentation, 
I was, you know, you look at the documentation and I was clearly not mm-hmm. reading it carefully or whatever. And I was just like, oh, or, or possibly. No, 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 I, I was. So the, the it says scan F and then, you know, like um, the, the, you're writing this value, right? Mm-hmm. To the space at this address. So you're, it's very clear. Yes. Scan F and then put the name, put the pointer name here. Right. And then mm-hmm. the value will be written to this address. Yeah. But then when I ran it, it produced a segmentation fault. And that's because, <laughs> okay, if you're somebody coming from a different language, you are saying, I declare this pointer. Right. And the pointer value is null. Yes. Right. And then when then, um, was it scanf? Oh God, I actually don't remember anymore. Oh, I, I forget the details. Basically, long story short, I made some <laughs> assumptions that would be fair to make in a more modern programming language, but that are yep. not fair to make in C. And basically, I just um, tried to reference uh, a null pointer. I mean, I just assume that if the pointer says it points to null, right, that mm-hmm. you can just read off that pointer anyway. Uh, yeah, but no, yeah. you cannot. So apparently about that. Okay, the reason why scanf is familiar to me, and it's not for the right reason. I, I know scanf because S-C-A-N-N-F is a function that you use in uh, principal component analyses okay. <laughs> to uh, to turn on or off the, the, the plotting of the scree plot. But this is okay. uh, a, a separate. So in, in are you familiar with principal component analyses? Nope. It's like a huge mainstay of statistics. Um, it basically takes multivariate data and it breaks it down into what they call principal components. Each okay. principal component is a combination of linear uh, linear factors uh, that okay. is drawn from your from your from your variables and your data. And um, it's a great way of sort of plotting data to look for relationships and clusters. Uh, and so when you want to see, you know, the number of principal components your data has is the number of parameters you put into your, so how many variables right. you have in your multivariate data set. Right, and right. so you usually choose the principal components that explain the most amount of variance in your data. And so right. a scree plot shows you the plot of how much variance each principal component uh, explains. Okay. And it allows you to see where the drop off is. Uh, Interesting. Okay. You know, so usually you take like the first two, three, four, five principal components, and you rarely beyond that. You know, especially when you have like millions of variables uh, you're working with. So when you're running principal component analysis on, in R, the function scanf, if you set it to false, will then uh, not plot the scree plot, and it would just take the first two principal components and plot right. them. Right. Okay. On the, on the figure. Ah. Oh, okay. But that's beside the point. Sorry. Yeah. So okay. no, I mean, huge digression yeah. into into statistics. No, it's 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 fine. I mean, this, it's a monkey mind, right? I mean, that's the whole point. So, mm. um, the, okay, I'm, I'm torn on two things to start talking about here. <laughs> One is how well done the whole CS50 program is. Um, and the right. other is the speed at which the difficulty of the program, of, this, of the material, kind of ramps up. Ramps so I up, think, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think maybe, okay, first I'll start with like how, how well designed it is. So CS50 is the single most uh, enrolled program um, on edX. I think at last count, it's like 1.9 million people have taken it. I don't oh, know if that is people who have enrolled, people who have completed or what. Um, 
Yeah, half I... of it could be people like me who enroll for the course, never complete, it, and then redo it again and again, and never complete it. I mean, it's possible, but then you need an edX account to do it. So I assume they at least have the okay. number of unique people who have who have done the course. Right. Um, mm-hmm. The open courseware is open to the public, actually. So, um, I you I guess you don't actually need to even be enrolled in edX. I'm not sure to to work through the the stuff. Um, another possible mm-hmm. way that they do the measurement is that you can submit problem sets, right? So, oh, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so they might base it on yeah. the number of problem sets or the number of unique mm-hmm. individuals who have submitted at least one problem set or something along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. So the thing about the... If you think about online courses on like Coursera or edX or wherever, right, they are often quite poor... Okay, let's just say it. They're very bad quality, some of them, right? It's right. Like somebody okay, yeah. talking to the camera and reading off a script and being like completely and boring <laughs> and stuff like that. And um, and this is true even of the professors who may have very interesting things to say. So I think on oh, Coursera, on Conce- on Coursera Yuval well, Noah Harari, mm-hmm. he had a course on mm-hmm. Coursera. Um, I mm-hmm. forget what it. I, I forget why it was, but it was, uh, oh. if you think about his book, uh, Homo Sapiens, right? Yeah. It was effectively going through a lot of the material that he covered in Homo Sapiens. And um, mm. the the production setup was kind of spiffy, right? So he's sitting in a chair mm-hmm. and then there are two cameras and then there is a screen behind mm-hmm. him where he can show like slides and everything. And then he just turns from mm-hmm. one camera to the other camera and then they intercut between the two cameras like he's a TV anchor. And yep. <laughs> the thing I think was like about the third lecture in, I realized that he was basically reading his book aloud. And then I thought, oh okay, this God. is... This is kind of a waste of time. I'm just going to buy his book and read that instead. <laughs> like, why am I? Why am I, I mean, sitting? It's basically an enhanced audiobook experience, yeah, basically. Pretty much, point. with the occasionally, you know, occasional quiz spurst in the middle of the video kind of thing. <laughs> and you know, I read his book, I enjoyed it, and everything. But mm-hmm. the course is not great. It is. It's well, I mean, this is not well this done. is also very relevant to our our current times, our yeah. current unusual times, because a lot of, you know, faculty are, are finding themselves having to move their material online, and Correct. they're starting to realize just how bloody challenging it is to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, I, I can't really speak for how many um, courses have, you know, how, um, if there is definitely a wide variance in, like, you know, from the worst courses to the best courses, so I've actually completed two other um, edX mm-hmm. courses and I think I've completed three Coursera courses so um, the two edX courses the oh, two other ones okay. that I did were on um, macronutrition and micronutrition which were from Wageningen mm-hmm. um, in the Netherlands and um, mm-hmm. oh no 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 I remember now <laughs> it's actually a very it's actually a very clever pair of titles macronutrients and overnutrition and then the companion okay. course is micronutrients and malnutrition. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> Which okay. is very cool. like pretty cool courses. Yeah. Yep. And yep. that was actually very well done because it was clearly from the start, it was pitched at an online audience and there were elements mm-hmm. of like, here's how you ask the professor questions. These are the deadlines if you want your questions to be answered. And then there was mm-hmm. um, actually um, assignments that you could submit 
and then they would be reviewed by uh, another member. They would be reviewed. They would be peer reviewed, actually. Oh, so okay, okay, right. One yeah, of yeah. your student, one of your course mates, would actually review your um, your your paper, whatever you wrote, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually opted not to do. Because I realized I could okay. still pass the class without it. And I think that is a deliberate <laughs> design decision. They hmm. did not want people passing or failing the course, especially the verified course, to be contingent on somebody else's grade. Right. Or somebody okay, else's grading. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I realized I, I mean, did the math. I was they like, thought through the process. Correct. You know, it's not something that it's just they migrated online and, you know. Correct. Yeah, just blindly say, okay, well, 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 yeah, we'll do it live. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very clear that they sat down and they were like, okay, an online course mm. is a new kind of beast altogether. We can't just migrate our lectures online. And um, yep. so it was, they, they, they definitely had like the talking head thing going on, right? Mm-hmm. And they def- But th- what they also did was they had, you know, animations. They also had stuff that was um, clearly... <laughs> like there there was a kind of an ongoing like live element like everybody is progressing through the program together so like at one point for example um i think his video team pranked him and gave him huh. like huh. i think i can't remember what they gave him to eat but it yeah <laughs> yeah i actually don't remember the details and i actually don't okay. even know like whether that was planned or unplanned like whether he knew right, that the, right. the, the, the joke was coming or not. But he had things like, for example, <laughs> um, like they would, they actually shot uh, in his house, like showing like, okay, this is what my my um, food cupboard looks like. And this is what we eat on a daily basis, right? And mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. just to kind of give a perspective of what a nutrition professor, right, keeps right. in his kitchen. Yep. And, and stuff like that. Yeah, so it yeah. was actually very well thought through. Um, okay. But I would say like the level of polish that CS50 has is like out of this world. It's like crazy phenomenal. So to give you an idea, right? And I don't know how much of this already existed in the in-person classes. Um, but when you... Okay. Let's just look at the video to, to start with. So when you open right. the... When you open the the edX course for the first time and you click on the video there is a one minute 15 second introduction i mean introduction as in like where you know like when you're watching tv and then there is the whole like introductory um animation to tell you what you're watching Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and this whole thing it's like the production value (laughs) it's like netflix level Okay, oh, maybe, shit. maybe okay. a little lower than Netflix level. Like, I mean, if you if you think about something like like Daredevil or whatever, right? Like the opening intro, right. that's clearly like CGI and like they invested a lot of money yeah. into it and stuff like that. But for CS50, yeah. they definitely had like one or two shooting sessions where they sat down and they did the same thing over and over and over again in front of a slow mo oh camera God. and like bright lights. And so you have things like like in slow mo, you have like a close up of a rubber duck. And then there is like a CS50 <laughs> stress ball. And then there is like a light bulb turning on. And then oh there God. are I mean, basically, bo- they hired a producer. Basically, yeah. And then there is like 
phone book pages dropping through the air and stuff like that. And like you can actually oh, also see like, you know, I think there is a section where they have like close up of like a bubbling purple liquid or something. Right. <laughs> and what's ridiculous There's about art it, direction. There is art direction, yeah. <laughs> what's ridiculous about it is that all of those things actually end up appearing through the clock through the course. What? Uh yeah, oh there's also God. a red there's also a red locker that closes. So um, as you go through the course, right? I'm sure there are some other bits that I've not seen yet, but on the on, on the first week, um, the professor mm-hmm. David Malan he explains the idea of binary and bits in a mm-hmm. computer by having a row of eight light bulbs, and they're not just light bulbs, okay? They're like Edison bulbs. Oh jeez, okay. <laughs> All right, where you can see the filament and everything, and yeah, yeah. so you know he will invite students up. And he'll he'll say like okay I've explained binary now how do you show like eleven in binary, right. saying that this yeah. is the ones place and this is the two to the power of seven place right and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and th- things like that okay so there is oh, the light geez. bulbs that's the light bulbs and then to kind of <laughs> this is week zero right to get across the idea of algorithms he's like okay mm-hmm. I have this phone book and I want to find. Michael Smith in this phone book. How would I go about doing yeah. that? And then he's like, okay, I could yeah. search, you know, from page one all the way through until I find um, until I find Michael Smith, but that's very inefficient, linear search, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. I could flip, I could open the book in the middle and then say, okay, is he in this, you know, is he before this part of the book or after this part of the book? Mm-hmm. Alright, and then mm-hmm. I just throw away the part that I don't need. He literally rips the phone book in half and throws away uh-huh. the part that Michael Smith is not oh in. Oh my god. And that's the whole phone book ripping part in the introduction. <laughs> I see I see what you mean when you say that he might have a theatre background because this is this is I, no, I think you said it, but yeah. Yeah, it's I very said, well, extravagant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Fair then enough. um I think in like the second week or whichever week it was, um, he actually, he talks about like debugging, right? Mm. And uh, this yeah. is also kind of one of the privileges of, you know, being at a university like Harvard, where he was like, oh, where does the term debugging come from? And then he has a slide showing Grace Hopper's diary mm-hmm. with, with a bug in it, <laughs> like an actual Wonderful. bug, right? Taped. And it's like, first known instance of real bug. <laughs> Um, because the story goes that, th- so it's it's a it's a term that it's, it's a story that's often repeated like, like people say debug because um, the first bug was when a literal actual bug was found inside a computer. So uh, apparently that's was it a quite, moth? Wait, was it, uh, a it was moth? a moth. It was a moth. Yeah. Right. So okay. Moth. Digression time. Moths, uh, not bugs. The, the term, well, the term bug is used by lay people to mean anything with more than two legs and okay. crawls around and generally creeps people out. Now, that is a sort of a widely used parlance, but technically speaking, when we talk about bugs, uh-huh. we are very specifically referring to a group of insects called the, het- uh, the homop- well, heteroptera, no longer homoptera, that's been deprecated. But okay. um, the, uh, the, these are insects with um, piercing mouth parts, so insects right. of six legs. Okay. Uh, and they have piercing mouth parts in the uh, yeah piercing mouth parts that feed on the variety of stuff. So things like um, uh, beetles are not bugs, right? Okay. Um, we're talking about things like cicadas. 
Uh, We're talking about okay. things like assassin bugs, shield assassin bugs. bugs. These are okay. true bugs. Assassin bugs. Are the, I can, we can spend a whole episode talking about assassin bugs. They are oh, the coolest things week. on earth. We can. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so um, yeah. So in, in any case, just a quick sort of uh, digression of pedantry. Uh, the first <laughs> bug is not actually a bug. It's a it's moth. Not actually a bug. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. It's a moth. Yeah. <laughs> so it was. And also, Grace Hopper uh-huh. was not Harvard. She was Yale, wasn't she? Um. Yeah, I actually don't know about this one, but the reason I bring it up I was think because at, she was at Yale, yeah. Yeah, because she was working on the Mark II computer when this moth yes. was found, and he just casually yes. said like, "Oh, you know, the Mark One is on the Harvard campus, like in the <laughs> museum <laughs> of don't know what, don't know what." Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember. Yeah, so there's yeah. Yale just named the whole entire college after Grace Hopper, and so yeah, I seem to remember that, yeah, and some pedigree. controversy that preceded that. But no, we don't have to go there. Yes, but that's actually, the yeah, we yeah. don't have to go there ever. How about that? Yeah, let's not. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's not. So, anyway, um, he was talking about like debugging, like how you debug things, right? And so he's like, okay, um, first you might have. Um, you can look at the error message in the compiler itself, and then sometimes you might mm-hmm. do like printf to print out the variables mm-hmm. as you go along, and then you have help50, which is a CS50-specific tool that... Is um, that right? Yeah. You can run it at the command line, so whatever mm-hmm. was causing you an issue before, you can type like... Let's say you tried to compile your program called hello.c, and it didn't compile, mm-hmm. and there's an error message that you don't understand. So you can type in help50, make... Hello, hello, right? And then okay. um, it will help fifty will will pass the error message from the compiler, and it will tell you, hey, um, this is what it means. You forgot to include oh. a library file, or you tried to pass like um, a character into an integer variable or something like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Okay, yeah. okay. And right. then there is a debug fifty, which is your typical debugger that allows you to set a breakpoint and then stop at that breakpoint and then shows you mm-hmm. all the variables that like what the values of all the variables are at that point and what the call stack looks like and all blah 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 and then he said okay um, and finally uh, of course you can go to office hours but that's a separate thing right he said <laughs> yeah and finally um, this is what I call the rubber duck method which is which is um, you can take a rubber duck and talk your program through to this rubber duck as if you are talking to a TA, because I think what they found was that often yeah. it's not the TA that helps to solve a problem. It's the act of talking it through, right? Yes, that's, and that's a And so point. he's yeah. like, okay, yeah. here is the, a rubber duck, and you can use this as a proxy for your TA <laughs> and talk <laughs> your problem through, and often that will be sufficient to show you where yeah. you went wrong. And then on the screen, yeah. they... So they are close up on him at first, and then they go to the wide shot, and on the stage that he's standing on, right to the right of him is a humongous rubber duck. <laughs> fair, fair enough. And then the whole <laughs> front of the stage is just rubber ducks for everybody. Oh my god! Like laid out in a row. <laughs> But right. I, I do like the philosophy of debugging because it's kind of like, you know, when, when also, I mean, the other method that people use when they learn how to write code is they write pseudocode, right? Yes. So it leads you through the process of what you're trying to get done. Right. It, which will then reduce the chance of you know, making yep. a silly mistake. Which I uh, realized in, in your logical process is, a, is a bad habit that I picked up from picking up programming as a kid. 
where you just dive right in. Mm. Um, yep. Even now, yep. like I have a lot of trouble like stepping out and being like, okay, this is what did I mean to do before I actually started typing things out? Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I realized that while I was doing the problem sets. Then, well, I mean, pseudocode gets especially useful when you're writing very long chunks of code as well. So very long yes. and complex process. I Correct. mean, uh, before we even get into, you know, nested loops, it's it's mm-hmm. just, you know, if you're doing multiple things at the same time, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it does get pretty complicated pretty quickly. Right. And I mean, I think that goes back to the idea of abstraction, right? Because you want to build from the mm. bottom up so that, yep. because you can't hold that much in your head at one time. So you want to be able yep. to do a small portion finish it, mm-hmm. test it fully, and then say, okay, yep. I know this part is reliable and I don't have to worry about it anymore. And then mm-hmm. that allows you to mm-hmm. work through your code bit by bit. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so that was, okay, that's the rubber yes. duck part. And the then rubber duck, oh my God. When he, when he reaches um, arrays, right, that's where the red lockers come in. <laughs> right? Um, uh, no, no, okay, it's okay. actually... I'm starting to see where you're going with this, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not actually arrays. I think it was actually algorithms where where the red lockers really kind of like came in their own. So okay. <laughs> so he yeah. had you know, they all came to class and then there was a row of like I think like seven red lockers and in each one there was a number. And it's not just a number, okay? It's one of those <laughs> lights that you can buy at like typo or wherever where um <laughs> that you might see in a hipster cafe, right? It's a light right, yep. that turns on. Yes. And um, so, so he's like, okay, let me get like X number of volunteers and I, I need you to find um, what behind one of these red lockers is the number 50. And I need you to find which locker has it. And so <laughs> like, yeah, you know, the, the, the students come up and then one guy like opens every locker one by one and naturally it's in the, it's in the mm-hmm. last one. Um, yeah. Which actually makes me wonder what would have happened, right? If the guy had started at the other end and just opened the last huh. one, like yeah. would he have repeated this exercise? Because, yeah. because like the point that you want to make, right, is that in an array, you have various methods of sorting, Right. Yes. And yeah. if you're trying yeah. to demonstrate linear search, the best case is when the element you're trying to look for is right at the, is the very last thing you look at, because yes, it shows you correct. the downside yeah. of of a linear search. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, um, then he's like, "Oh, how how would you describe this method that you just did?" And then the guy is like, "Linear search." And then he's like, "Yeah, okay, obviously you have done this before." <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, then he tries to demonstrate binary search, right? And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, his his TA, or actually not TA. The term I think is senior preceptor. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. You know, rearranges, I puts the numbers back in. Sorry. Yeah, but they are they are they are sorted this time, and then that allows mm-hmm. him to demonstrate like binary search. Like he has somebody else. Saying like now the numbers are sorted and I need you to find fifty, right? Mm, right. <laughs> okay. Yep. And then after that, um, I think, I think at the end of this, um, actually I don't remember which one comes first. Then he has everybody hold a number, and then they are told to stand in a random order. Told to stand in a random order, meaning there is a number that's already, you know, an order that's already up on the slides and. And yep. they're supposed to stand under the number that they are. 
<laughs> okay. That okay. um, you know, that they're hold the they are supposed to stand under the number, um, that's the same as the one that they're holding. And then yeah. they're like, Oh, can you sort yourselves out? And then after that, they're like, Okay. Okay, now um <laughs> can you direct these people to sort them, you know, to sort themselves into a sorted array and stuff like that. And then at the end of that, everybody gets a stress ball. And so that's a stress ball (laughs) in the CS50 (laughs) introduction. Very good. And then it's stuff like that. So like the purple bubbling liquid, it comes from a demonstration where he asks, uh, he's like, here is um, purple liquid in a cup and here is green liquid in a cup and then he asks somebody to come up and say, okay, can you transfer the purple liquid to the green liquid? And what Mm. this is meant to show is that you cannot transpose two variables without a holding variable. Right, okay. And then the kid is like, the kid is like, um, like, can I like pour them back into the jug? And then he's like, no, you can't. And he took the jug away. He took the the two jugs (laughs) away. And then she's just looking at it and like, just be like, oh, what the hell do I do? And then he's trying to guide her along, right? He's like, um, yep. um, you're hesitating. Why? And then she took the two cups and then she switched their positions. <laughs> and he's like, that's not what I meant. But very good nonetheless. I mean, yeah. So and I then, mean, this this smacks of a course that's just extremely well thought out, extremely right? exquisitely planned. Yeah, and then okay, Good and heavens. then he produces like a third cup from behind his back. He's like, now mm. let me give you one more, and that's mm. your holding variable, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and okay, so the thing about it that is very hard to grok is that um, the slides are public. You can mm-hmm. go and look at his Google slides, but mm-hmm. if you only look at his Google slides, you have no idea what anything is supposed to be. Because this is a really um, high level, you know, it's a very, you know how people say, right, oh, don't put on your slides the thing that you're going to just talk about, Mm -hmm. right? Like you don't want to be reading off your slides or whatever. And this is a perfect example. The slides are 100% an accessory to the lecture. If you only look at the slides, you have no idea what went on. So I looked yeah. at his um, slides for the memory lecture because I was curious how many, you know, well, like as you're watching it, if you know anything about, you know, presentations or animation or whatever, you realize there must be a huge amount of preparation that goes into it. For this mm-hmm. lecture, this lecture is about like two hours, just under, right? Um, there were 212 slides. Oh, jeez. This sounds like some of the presentations I make because, you know, I don't like putting words on my slides. Yes. I, I share a similar philosophy when it comes to giving talks and I yep. have given my fair share of talks as an academic. So, right. you know, you realize that if you're just reading off and this, I mean, this is having, you know, been through many, many, many years of, of you know, formal education and you see a variety of styles yes. and you settle on the style that you think fits your way of doing things best, right? Yep. I, I have a incredible amount of dislike for people who just read off slides because I don't need to be there. Yes. (laughs) I can read off your slides. Um, Yeah. So the style I've I've hewn towards is what you basically described is that, you know, the the slides are there to provide some kind of um, 
emphasis on what you're talking about as well as yeah. to 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 cue the audience as well as the presenter as to what the key key points are right you're right yeah so okay so here's the other thing um i mean firstly when you when you when you're just talking about the slides right if you if you mm. look at the way that he uses the slides it's essentially he uses them as cute animation so yeah. the memory um lecture right it begins mm-hmm. with um what looks like a matrix of it's just a table right and then now he's going to he talks through um what mm-hmm. addresses might look like so in he's yeah. trying to get across the he's trying to explain that hexadecimal is Mm-hmm. You know, you you refer to memory addresses by using hexadecimal. So first, yes. he's like, okay, here is, you know, we have, this is an artist rendition of what memory might look like, right? Um, and it's just boxes, right? Uh, in a very mm-hmm. strict, like, matrix. And then he's like, okay, and now if I need an address, right, to, you know, if I need to refer to these boxes by um, some kind of identifier... I might call it, I might start at zero and then I count out. So he goes zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. And that's literally like the first 16 slides. And then he repeats <laughs> the same thing yep. in a hexadecimal. Yep. It's like, but that's yep. not how computers do it. So how computers do it is, again, when you, in hexadecimal, right, you start at zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then it's A, B, C, D, E, F. And then there's mm-hmm. an explanation of hexadecimal so first he's like okay this is how you count in binary and then and it's literally just counting in binary then this is how you <laughs> count in decimal this is what 255 mm-hmm. looks like in in binary this is what 255 yeah. looks yeah. like in decimal and this is what 255 looks like in hexadecimal and then um, mm-hmm. you know stuff like that and um, it's okay so the funny thing is you have all these slides right um, but then, actually, if you look at his public published Google Slides, uh, we're going to run... I mean, do you have any opposition to running long today? Nope. Okay, cool. Nothing so, to do. Well, I mean, I have things to do, but, you know, yeah. uh, this is a good conversation we're having. Yeah, so before the lecture slides, right? Um, so, actually, the funny thing was, in week four, right, I noticed that there were some, like, hidden slides at the beginning. And <laughs> so, the hidden slides, right, they are actually stuff that's pertinent to the students who are doing it in person on campus um, okay, and okay. less so for the ones um, who are watching the video. So mm-hmm. it has stuff like, oh, you know, today's break time food is like cookies and stuff, which is another mm-hmm. crazy thing. Like, I, I get that it's a two-hour lecture um, and you will have a break time, but they ha- literally have break time snacks for everybody. So he'll, you know, during the break, he'll be like, Oh yeah, okay, well let's take our five minute break here. There are cakes outside. There are cookies outside. There's like whatever outside. <sighs> Ivy League money, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Uh wait till <laughs> you you I mean be, this is all before I describe the equipment that they have. Oh my god. Okay. Oh, so good heavens. Yeah. So uh, we should just point out this is not an advertisement for CSUT. We're not paid by them. We're not paid we are by not. anyone to do any of we this. We are not. This is just purely because we like teaching. Yes, we are interested good in teaching. education, broadly speaking. Yeah, and we uh, appreciate mm-hmm. good teaching when we see it. Um, and also, if you are interested in like computer science, I would highly advise CS50. Uh, I don't know if I would say it's a good place to start. Um, although, because many of us are not beginners. 
Yeah. Both, I, neither of us are beginners. So we've, Here's we've the interesting. Some... The, the interesting thing is that about two thirds of um, the people who take it on campus have never done CS before. So mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily advise against starting there, but it is very intensive. And so mm. if you don't have a need to have an academic introductory academic course to computer science, I wouldn't necessarily say to to do it. Although um, what's what's useful is that there is he actually has a course also called Understanding Technology, which is probably a much more it's high level, and mm-hmm. um, you don't I don't think you get into the weeds of like memory allocation and all that stuff as much. <laughs> and there's also CS50 for lawyers and CS50 for business professionals, and it's the is same. Is that right? Oh, wow. yeah. There's is the is the same um, idea of like you still have the concepts but you don't necessarily have to get into the weeds as much because I mean CS50 is an introductory course in the comm science department so they have to get you mm-hmm. ready for upper level courses but right. if you are yeah. doing it purely for self-enrichment it may not be right for you right so mm. but it's yeah. you know you can still appreciate the, the pedagogy behind it um, yeah so on week four's slides at the beginning that are actually hidden in the public slides, um, he actually shows, right, a chart of students' declared stress levels. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually, it actually says, like, week zero on a scale of, like, one to ten, how stressed mm-hmm. do you, like, you know, how stressed do you feel about this material? And then week two and then week three, and then you can, you can see it go up. Oh, yeah. So oh, I can, can imagine, yeah. Yeah, you can see it start to tend to the left. And also, from a week two to week three, there is a big drop-off, which is all the people <laughs> dropping out. <laughs> like, from week two to week three, it's actually not even that the graph shifts to the left. The graphs just drop <laughs> and shift to the and to the right, shift to the right. They just yeah, drop sorry, and shift right, to the right. Yeah, skew toward the right, yeah. 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 And the, funny, <laughs> the other funny thing is, like, so I was curious, like, does he do this every week? So... Every week, right, the little data, you know, infographics are slightly different. So I think for week three or week four, I don't know which one of the weeks, he showed two graphs. One was um, a graph of when did you start working on the problem set? So it's like Monday to Sunday. I assume class is on Monday. I could be wrong. Uh, I assume class is on Monday because I think officially for the on-campus classes, the problem sets are due on Sunday. Right. So, um, most students started on Tuesday, or a plurality of students started on Tuesday. And then some start in the middle of the week and so on. Um, <laughs> then they have um, a program called Check 50, which okay. I think this is actually common for a lot of um, intro to comm science classes, especially those at major universities that have like hundreds of students. The, mm-hmm. you know, they just do an automated test similar to how you might do a unit test actually um, okay, okay an automated right. unit test right they just take this program and they run a checking program on it to see if okay there's a set of inputs that they know produces a certain result and they tend to be the edge cases so mm-hmm. yeah um you run your compiled program through this checker and it will tell you these are the test cases we checked it passed these ones it didn't pass those ones and so mm-hmm. the fascinating thing is most students 
or not most, many students, right, said they started on Tuesday or Wednesday. But then they had another slide which showed <laughs> usage of Check 50 throughout the week. <laughs> and it skews so hard to Sunday. Like the vast, like the highest, the peak of it, right? Um, Sunday had the most check-ins by far. And okay. the peak, mm-hmm. right, is around dinner time. I mean, it's, are you surprised? No. Having, having previously been an educator... Uh, being an educator and being a student, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I'm also curious, like how they Fair define enough. like start the problem set. Like the start means I yeah. read the question. I maybe I downloaded, downloaded the, the file. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is again just purely about the presentations. Um, right now, the equipment. <laughs> oh God. So. Um, let's talk about hardware first because the hardware is more visible so he teaches on a you know he has um, a MacBook that he types Mm -hmm. his code on when he is teaching and then next to that there is what looks like a huge Microsoft Surface I don't know if it's a Surface actually Mm -hmm. but it's it's a big one that you can write on and draw on and stuff and then oh jeez um yeah, and I think he uses that for like you know freehand drawing and and stuff like during the yep. during the lecture, um, and then there is a big screen that's facing all the students, mm-hmm. um, but it's not that big because this is not a projected screen. This is an actual physical screen. It's also a Microsoft screen. Oh, and I okay. don't know. I don't know if this is just a humongous surface or whatever. Because I don't. It's, like, it's personally... like a smart whiteboard, is it? It is like those... a smart whiteboard, except okay, it's basically projecting like what's on his presentation screen. So his Mac, right, is for the coding, right, yep. and yep. then the Microsoft is for the presenting, right? Yeah. The the Surface mm-hmm. thing is for the presenting. So mm-hmm. what is on that huge um, Surface? Right, it's actually mirrored to the huger surface that faces the students. Mm-hmm. And then there's another okay. projected one um, behind him. You know, because if you imagine a lecture hall and then there is that humongous projected screen, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and at first, yep. I assumed that the bigger Microsoft screen was just a screen because it, you know, he wasn't actually doing Functions anything. Like yeah, mm-hmm. he wasn't doing any of the, he wasn't like, using any of the functions. Except for one point where he mm-hmm. was pointing to something on the smaller screen. I mean, I say smaller screen. Okay. At this point, we have described three different screens. On the tablet. He was, yeah. He was yeah pointing to something on the humongous tablet. And then he mm-hmm. accidentally triggered the contextual menu. He, yeah, mm, the contextual menu. And then I was like, oh yeah, my so God. So I think it's thing, a smart whiteboard, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, like, it's not just a mm. monitor. It's actually, a, mm. it's actually an input device as well. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. He will switch back and forth between his presentation and his coding screen, which is the Mac. Mm-hmm. And on his coding screen, right, he um, he sets up. Um, I think this is. I'm not sure whether he's in the IDE or the Sandbox. So he, there are a number of different tools that are available to students of CS50. One is a CS50 Sandbox. And one is a CS50 mm-hmm. IDE. Now, IDE, Integrated Development Environment, I think 
Mm-hmm. Basically, it's where you your workspace lies as a programmer, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so they actually set up one where you sign in or do you have to sign in with GitHub? I think you have to sign in with GitHub. Yeah. So you sign in with GitHub, you do your work there, and then when you submit your work, right, it automatically goes into um, the GitHub repository for CS50. Nice, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the sandbox is just for so you. So all to the help. file referencing is done natively in GitHub. Yeah. As well. I mean, okay, you still amazing. have to, okay. like the distribution code and so on, you still have to, you know, download it. It's not automatically there for mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But basically, it's like its own little ecosystem of CS50 tools that are already available. Because nice. otherwise, you imagine, right? Like, can you imagine getting everyone to set up their own development environment at home? And then, by the way, yeah. go and download Help 50 mm. and download Check 50 and download, um, you know, Debug 50. Um, or yep. Yep. what used to be done, I believe, was um, to have everybody um, run a virtual machine. Oh, God. And, um, yeah. The setup time is going to take forever. I mean, having yeah. worked with you know uh, students who don't necessarily uh, know all the nuts and yeah. bolts, it, it takes. A, I mean, I'm doing a course in, in in advanced R now, and it you know just setup alone takes such a long time because people but, have different configurations, different versions of R as well. That's one big problem. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I think what's fascinating is that because this actually helps to solve um, a problem that Mm -hmm. may not be obvious at the start when you're doing an online course, Mm -hmm. which is scalability. Yes. Right? Because you want to make sure that as much as possible, people are working on the same environment. um, Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that... Because, you know, students will drop out if they find that they are not able to do the coursework due to an equipment limitation. And, yeah, um, yeah, so he actually wrote... Um, he actually wrote a paper called um, I think it was something like I, I can't remember the title but we'll have it in the show notes it was something like Secure Execution of Untrusted Code <laughs> and it actually relates <laughs> well. to this it actually relates mm. to this because the problem and it's a technical problem is as well as a ped- pedagogical problem how do you give students a sandbox to play in that allows them to that doesn't restrict what they try, right? But at the same time, you don't know what they are going to put in it. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Yeah, and so it's a... I mean, to be fair though, I think many uh, programming language courses, online programming language courses now have adopted this strategy. I think there are several, I don't don't know exactly, but but I do remember having taken a bash or just, you know, playing around with a bash online course and they had their own sandbox to play with. Yeah, I think that's you very common. You could write common. code in and get output. Mm. Yeah, that's, re- that's yeah. very common now. Um, I mean, I'm actually also doing a Udacity course on um, iOS mm-hmm. development. And they mm-hmm. also have their own sandbox that's online. But I think what is different is um, I don't know if I've seen one that has a full IDE where you actually mm. can store your problem sets um, on their cloud. No, probably not. Yeah, because that requires yeah. so much infrastructure too. Get, yeah. yeah, and yeah, I think that's done. really something that only is justified by having the kind of numbers of students that CS50 has. I think if mm-hmm. you're a small course, mm-hmm. you wouldn't try and do this, but then you have a chicken and egg, pro- you have a chicken and egg problem, right? Like when yeah. a course, yeah. you know, achieves a, such a dominant position, 
by having all mm-hmm. these tools, how do you, how do you, <laughs> like, it's almost like if you are trying to set up your own intro to CS course, you might as well just be like, nah, you know what, Harvard is better. Just take that. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then this is the other thing that kind of, frankly, blew my mind. So, when he is presenting, right, um, there are two separate screens that he is, you know, he can refer to. And so you have no problem if you are trying to, you know, if you're the producer, you have no problem if you need to be able to see the professor and the screen at the same time. You can just mm-hmm. catch him while he is, you know, pointing at the, the, the big, you know, Microsoft screen. But then if he's coding, you don't necessarily want to see a screen just with words and characters appearing on the screen, right? And there okay, is, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have a, he's definitely going to be at his MacBook, which is not near the screen, mm-hmm. not near the big screen mm-hmm. that everybody sees. So mm-hmm. they actually set up a green screen. Oh, good God. They set up a green screen off to his, uh, it's right and behind him. And actually, I think it's actually very unobtrusive. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sure in person it's much more obtrusive, but <laughs> right. but when you're looking at it like from the you know the way that they they've done the camera work and so on, you you probably wouldn't notice it unless you were looking out for it. Um, hmm. And they effectively have like a coding cam, so to speak, right? They have one camera that is just set up to pick up that position where he is standing at the Mac and coding, mm-hmm. and then the green screen is behind him. And the reason mm-hmm. I bet that is a dedicated camera is because it has to be, in order to get this effect, the lens yeah, has yeah. to be quite long. And so it yes. wouldn't make sense to be swinging that that camera around um, yeah. when you know that, you know, at any moment he could step in and, and be coding. Right, So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, okay, so when he takes questions from students, there is a wide camera that is the is a... Okay, it's wide and it's all the way at the back of the auditorium. And it doesn't mm-hmm. just, yep. it's not just static. It is very slowly panning from left to right or right to left. Oh my god. And I'm just like. This is, I mean, this production quality, production value is, is just unbelievable. Somebody sat down and thought <laughs> if we were filming this as like mm-hmm. a public lecture, right? Um, or if we were filming this as like a, uh, I don't know, like a BBC series or something like that, right? What right, is right, the yeah. level of production <laughs> that would be expected? And then they just did it. So there's a there's an art director, there's a DOP, there is... <laughs> what else is there? I mean, having there's a lecturer, how, obviously. Have you looked at how big the CS50 team is? Like, supposedly there is a... I, feel like I read somewhere that there were like 80 people on the CS50 team. Oh, good God. Wow, okay. Yeah, and it's not just the mm. production stuff and, um, you know, the teaching assistants and so on, but mm-hmm. there are people yeah. who are writing the code for the sandbox, writing the code for mm-hmm. Check 50, for Debug 50, and, and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. And also, they actually have um, documentation. Um, so, like, any language, right, will have a function documentation to kind of tell you how all the different functions work because you're not ever going to know all of them by heart, right? Um, mm. And they actually have a CS50 specific one 
that include some functions that were written just for CS50, but also for um, C in general. So they took whatever was widely available in C, they adapted it for CS50, and they actually have a, a, a checkbox in the function search that's just frequently used in CS50. So you can just see the right. list. That, oh, that's very clever. Yeah, that's commonly referenced, yeah. or you can see the full list mm -hmm. of C functions that they've decided to put into the documentation. Mm -hmm. And then, well, I mean, I mean, the the the, the uh -huh. larger picture, moving beyond CS fifty, is really you know, and this also goes beyond just computer science, but also into statistical programming as well. Yep. Um, how teaching methods are changing over time, yep. right now that also. Personal computers, laptop computers, portable computers, even tablets are becoming a lot more abundant and more powerful as well. Um, yeah. I'm doing the, 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 the advanced statistics course or the advanced R course I'm doing right now is okay. also very interesting because it, it um, well, for several reasons. One is because they are teaching it using a flipped classroom methodology. So oh, yeah. there is no actual teaching going on in person. There's a whole bunch of YouTube videos. The lecturer has notes and the YouTube videos basically go through those notes. So you watch that before class. You come in, and when you come in, it's to do an assignment, and the in-person function is just so the TAs can either help you troubleshoot your code or you know answer questions. And yeah. the thing is, all these assignments are written up. So this is how uh, you know in, in R you can write your your code out as a huge long script, but there's yeah. also a different. Uh, there's a there's a, there's a uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a layer, but uh, there's a additional function or additional thing called R Markdown. Oh, it's okay. a separate, it's not really a language, but it's a way of, you know, it's like HTML, you know, it helps to format it's content into a nice looking fashion. I know what you yeah, mean, yeah. It's Markdown, right? Yeah. So so basically it allows you to create documents um, that contain a mixture of not just regular text, images, but also code blocks. And okay. um, it can also include, you can also import, you can also write in LaTeX as well, which is very useful mm -hmm. if you're doing, you know, complex uh, formulas and trying to write those out. So right, right. so basically for each lesson, there is a R Markdown uh, uh, document you can download and compile. And then you can, you know, uh, he already writes, the, the professor already has written several code blocks to guide you through the process. And then what he wants okay. you to do is, you know, okay, say you know, this week is principal component analysis. He's already written the the, 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 the basic principal component analysis, analysis function. Now what you need to do is, okay, here is the data that I've given to you. Here is the most basic of all analyses. Right? Uh, uh, I take the raw data and I run a PCA. Now, this is obviously wrong, right? right. What, can, what should you do to make the data... Uh, you know, uh, to make the data meet the assumptions of the analysis, as right. well as, you know, to should you exclude certain outliers. So this is where the learning process comes in, where you have to decide on the spot, okay, this is an outlier, let me exclude it from the data set. What code do I need to write to, to amend, you know, in order to, to, to yeah, to make the, the, the analysis better. Right. And so that's, that's you know, in, in, in the same vein as we're talking about CS50, right, it's, it's really the, the, the learning process is now changing. In the past, it's, you know, I would run you through the different functions mm -hmm. and then you go home and you, you, I give you an assignment. Okay, uh, yeah. given this data set and analyze it this way. But this way, you know, it, it's, it's a bit more handholdy, I agree. But, you know, I think the learning is a lot more, it makes the learning a lot more intuitive that way. Right. I think, um, which brings me to the, to the next step of like how fast the mm. CS50 moves. Um, okay, so here's the other interesting thing. But I mean, there are like about three things that I want to talk about all at the same time. So actually, let me let me address this thought first before it 
kind of like disappears. Um, mm-hmm. I think CS50 might be the first class of any kind, whether online or offline, that has become its own brand. Because yeah. <laughs> they have a merch shop. So remember the rubber duck oh my and the God. stress ball? Yep. You can buy them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy them. And they also have shirts that say, I took CS50. Um, Very good. And I think you may have to finish the course before you can buy them. Like, they ask you for, like, some kind of verification code. Anyway, there's right. that. And then um, the other thing I realized also is CS50 is obviously the name of one course, right? But if you yes. go on edX, and not just edX, but if you go on, like, Harvard Extension School, because, you know, these are mostly offshoots of actual classes that are taught at Harvard. Um, there is now CS50 for lawyers, and CS50 for business <laughs> professionals, except yep. they can't possibly be called CS50. You know what I mean? So yeah. CS50 yeah. has just become shorthand for introduction to computer science for lawyers, introduction to computer yes. science for business professionals. I see then, secret decoder glasses on sale as well. One dollar. Yeah. Shades yeah, I, 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 Good lord. I, I, haven't, I haven't gotten to that part in the course yet. Okay. <laughs> Curious about that. Um, Do you look at the tote bag? And yes. Do you see that part where it says, all orders are packed by real Harvard students? I'm like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. I mean, <laughs> I have nothing labor. to say. Yeah, I have nothing to say about that. Anyway, um, there is, so the thing is, there are also subsequent classes that you can take after this one. There mm-hmm. are, um, there's like CS50's introduction to web programming. CS50's introduction mm-hmm, to like right. mobile programming and I think CS50 introduction mm-hmm. to AI as well as uh, there's one more that I'm missing but I can't remember what it is game development okay. CS50's introduction to game oh. development which again brings back to the point that CS50 itself has become a brand because they wanted it to be clear that these were follow-on classes from CS50 but those classes mm. by themselves Logically, right, in the standard college class paradigm, those classes cannot possibly be called CS50. But they wanted to create that association. So it is a brand Mm -hmm. by itself at this point. Um, Which means, of course, now I've forgotten the next other thing that I want to talk about. So um, the speed of progress. And, okay, so I sent you a Facebook message that kind of talked about this because it was such a... It was such a strange... um, is really intensive progression. And the class, I think, originally is called Intensive Introduction to Computer Science. So mm-hmm. it is meant to be a fire hose, right? But um, <laughs> in the in week zero, you do something in Scratch. So it's GUI-based, it's drag and drop. You are implementing logic and, uh, in a sense, algorithms, but it's very beginner-friendly. Then... Week one, you have C, and you start with the usual hello world. Um, But I think it's slightly modified, so it takes an input of like a name, and then it gives you like hello so-and-so. And And then Mm -hmm. um, in week, no, still in week one, um, you are also supposed to take an input of an integer and then spit out. um, the, the, The problem set question is called Mario. Because you're supposed to spit out like a series of blocks of a certain height, okay. just like okay. the blocks that you'd see in Mario, right? And so this right. actually implements yep. four uh, four loops uh, and nested loops, if I'm not if I remember. 
and uh, do they have to be, they they do have to be nested, and then the okay. third one, the the third kind of question in this problem set was cash or credit. So cash is less comfortable, meaning students who have less familiarity with programming and they might feel like, you know, they are, they are already feeling intimidated. Credit is for those who are feeling more comfortable. So mm-hmm. I had a ego moment and I was like, I'll do credit. <laughs> so I did look at cash as well. Cash basically is like, um, can you calculate given you input an amount and then the program is supposed to tell you the fewest number of coins needed to reach that amount. Mm. Yeah. And then right. um, credit. So it's actually not a straightforward, it's not super straightforward for the second week of class because there is some computation involved, right? Uh, and yeah. you have to think carefully yeah. about how to implement your algorithm. And then um, yeah. credit is literally, okay, write a thing that will check whether something is a valid Visa, MasterCard, or Amex number. Ah, so a checksum. Yes. Kind of function. Correct. And okay, um, is that basically it's a functions assignment, right? Write write a function. Um, I mean, effectively, in a sense, in a sense, all assignments are function assignments. Um, okay, you fair don't enough. have <laughs> to write it as a separate function if you don't want to, but I think generally okay. people will agree that it's good practice. To, to do it mm, and mm. I wrote mine in three functions because the checksum involves okay. um, the sum of digits not just you know I mean a lot of checksums involve sum of digits so yeah, I have one yeah. that will that will return the digit um, and then I have one that would um, I don't remember exactly one that would return the digit one that would perform the checksum the, the checksum itself and then I can't remember what the third one mm-hmm. was yeah. Okay, okay. And um so that's week one. Now week two So having flashbacks to my population genetics exam where we yeah. have to write a function to calculate some pop gen parameters as well. So that was a lot of fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. So there is a, a, a small uptick in difficulty already, right? So week two mm-hmm. was on oh, arrays yeah. and uh you had to implement a you had to implement a substitution cipher substitution was the more challenging one. Oh wow yeah. okay okay yeah substitution is more challenging so the the easier one was mm-hmm. was um caesar and caesar basically is like you mm-hmm. input a number to offset the number yeah. on your i mean so you, you have a, a text yeah, yeah. right like hello right yeah. h-e-l-l-o and That's then right. you input a number and then it offsets the the letters by that number of letters yes right so like if yep. you offset by one then h becomes i and then e becomes f and so on mm-hmm. yeah um substitution yeah. was you had to write something that um asked the user for a 26 key 26 uh, letter key mm-hmm. yeah and then the yep. key has to contain every letter only once you're supposed to check for that that's right it's yep. not supposed to contain any um, numbers or any non-letter characters. Again, you're supposed to check for that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, basically, the first letter in the key is A, the second letter is B, and so on and so forth. Then you take plain text and you spit out cipher text. And yep. your plain text is supposed to preserve case. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Okay. It's okay, supposed okay. to preserve case. And My yeah, stuff God. like that. Yeah, so that was That's laborious, but okay. Uh, not actually, but that's the point. Like, 
Okay. If you do it well, uh, mm. it's not super, super complex. But you do have to think okay. about it. Now, week three yes, you do. is yeah. algorithms. Yeah. And week three, oh. right, is about implementing two election simulations. First, a plurality election, the <laughs> first past the post election. And then either an instant runoff or a tight man election. And so, mm. my egoistic self was still thinking, I can handle, I'm more comfortable. And then I looked at the tight man specification and I was like, nope. I don't really want to uh, I don't really want to do this so I just did the instant <laughs> runoff <laughs> yeah I, I mean fair enough yeah yeah and then week four which is the memory class okay oh, <laughs> that was that was the one where they're like we've written this thing the distribution code right is already able to read and output a bitmap mm, right and they've written a data type for you that allows you to manipulate the RGB values in the bitmap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what you're supposed to do is to write filters <laughs> for these bitmaps. This is like, I mean, I mean, in, in, a, in an analog process, this is like learning how to manually burn and dodge photos. Um, in, in a way, yes. When yes. developing, right? Because Not, you're actually learning the, the physical process behind how you create images. So, I mean... I don't remember exactly how. Um, I remember when I was in, in college, right? And I was thinking about taking a comm science class. And I remember mm -hmm. looking up the syllabus. I mean, not exactly the syllabus because that wasn't public. But I found the like the source files for um, a lot of the problem sets. And the distribution files, I should say. Like, it's not the source files. It's not the answers mm. to the problem sets. Yeah. Um, but I remember looking through... And I seem to recall that at NYU, I could be very wrong about this because, again, I'm working on very limited information. At NYU, recursion was only taught near the end of the class. So it was like ah. week 12 or week 13, thereabouts. Um, and in CS50, I think recursion is in week 3, 2? Mm -hmm. I don't... Mm -hmm. I, it was one of those two, yeah. So they move okay. at this astonishing pace. I mean, um, re recursion as in like loops? Not loops, because loops are iterative. Yes, so okay, okay. loops are you just going through, you have a set of conditions and you go through um, until the conditions are met or not met, right? Um, That's recursion right. Yeah. is when a function calls itself. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, blimey. Yeah, okay. That, that's yeah. that's yeah. significantly more complex. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to say... Uh, but I know week five, which I'm on right now, is data structures. Week mm -hmm. six is Python. And the Python Ooh, problem set fun. the Python problem set is just a re-implementation of week one's problem set, but in, <laughs> uh, but in Python. And so yeah. And so I'm kind of wondering whether it kind of, you know, has have we gotten over the I mean, I find myself thinking throughout like weeks three, four, five, like I can't wait until we get to the languages that don't try and kill you. <laughs> you know, it's oh, like it's like I'm. I know I mean, I'm being very spoiled. Don't speak spoiled. too soon, lah. Basically, yeah, I know, yeah. but it's like you know, I know I've been very spoiled, but I can't wait until I can get to a language where I don't have to worry Be about careful my, what you allocation. Wish for. <laughs> but there is a reason why. The, um, there is a reason why academic computer science has this reputation. 
which is mm. that the conceptual element of it is very different from the implementation of it. Oh, very much so, yeah. Right? And yeah. I think there is definitely... Um, and I mean, obviously, if you go through a comp science program, you're, you're expected at the end to be comfortable with both the academic side and the implementation side, right? Or the, mm -hmm. the, the academic and the practical. But um, yes. I think a lot of people who learn comp science in a practical environment never deal with the, the abstract stuff because it's mm -hmm. not necessary for the most part. And so this is a this is a challenge, right? Because how do you, on the one hand, right, if it's not necessary for ninety nine percent of programming applications, why teach it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, right, um, if you are, th th that's the that's the thing often about these types of disciplines, right? When you need that one percent, you need <laughs> that one percent. You absolutely and, do. Yeah. Yeah. And education, for the most part, is not a Pareto type of of um, pursuit, right? You are mm -hmm. not trying to yeah. find the. You're not trying to get through it easy necessarily. And that, that was, I mean, when I was taking production sound in in, in school, we would go to to class and do all these super complex setups, and then. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Where you go out on set, which is required of the class anyway, I'm uh, like ninety percent of the stuff. You're like, this is so easy. Why are we doing all? Well, I mean, you have difficult... to learn the long division before you can use a calculator, right? So right, yeah, it's that kind of situation <laughs> because um, ninety percent of their work is so trivially easy. Easy, somebody can yeah. come on set and be trained to do it in an hour. But yeah. the remaining ten percent is what you're being paid for. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Right? Yeah, and I think that's kind of where you have that. Um, I mean, people always argue about whether you really need to go to school for some things. Um, but I mean, I was looking at the Udacity um, iOS development program. Uh, honestly, mm -hmm. the reason is because I've been looking at it for a while, but the price is expensive, and I realized that. Um, firstly, I realized that the price that I was being shown is in Sing dollars and not in USD. Ah, okay, it's quite right. a bit cheaper. And secondly, there's there, there's a fifty percent COVID discount. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so I figured that was a good time. And then yeah. um, I've been looking through that material as well. It's also very well designed, but very different. Mm -hmm. It has a very different like feel to it, and also because it has a very sp the target audience is very different as well. The target audience of Udacity is to get people jobs, right? Is people who are looking for jobs in this thing that they're training in. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there is a conceptual element, but their ultimate mm -hmm. goal is to get them up to speed mm -hmm. to be functional. With application. Yeah. Correct. And so, yeah. um, the, anything that is... The movie is quickly from development into production. Well, effectively, in, uh... effectively, <laughs> yeah. In, in a sense, yeah. In computer engineering syntax. Yeah. <laughs> and so the approach to teaching is much more um, expedient. It's, you know, you're not trying mm. to teach from first principles at all. Um, yeah, you're just yeah. trying to get from nothing or very little to being able to build stuff. Yeah. And uh, it's, 
I mean, I'm, I'm sure that because the university course is, is scheduled or expected to take six months. Um, oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah, okay, so I'm six sure, months. I'm sure we'll be, yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about, okay. about it a lot more. But I mean, just to give well, perspective, I mean, they hmm. expect you to put in about a rate of about 10 hours per week. They expect you to finish in okay. six months. Wow, jeez. Well, I mean, okay, we're running extremely long, but, you know, as a, as a, again, as a side, it's, it also mirrors how uh, I learned versus how I taught um, uh, what's it, regular expressions. Oh, my God. I had okay, to use yeah? regular expressions for a very specific function, which I won't go into. And uh-huh. when I was taught regular expressions, it was like, okay, just go and Google, you know, all the different things you need to do to write this expression to extract this this piece of information from this long you know complex raw data set and the way i was taught was extremely unfulfilling because you know regular expressions are extremely powerful (laughs) yes right as string manipulation you know it is exceptionally powerful and you know especially when you're dealing with large data sets that you know in my case it's dna right right okay strings are extremely long but at the time i was working with text where, you know you have these huge okay. text corpuses right. that you have to you have to pull you know very specific information from, and just being told oh you know yeah reg regex is useful for this if you want to know how 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 to do it better just go and Google it it really doesn't make a lot mm. of sense so you know it, when when I when I had to teach it to the next generation of people who had to learn this I made sure to you know go to at least okay what are you know strings. What are characters? What are floats? And you know, these are all things that you have to know to some extent in order to basically manipulate raw data for extraction. The funny thing is that regex is um, an aspect of comp science that really lends itself to problem sets. Yes, it's perfect for setting problem sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I learned yep. regex from a book as a kid. The book was something <laughs> like. The Quick Start Guide to PHP by Larry Ullman. There we go. It's by, it was published by Peach Pit Press. I don't know if the press still exists, but I remember their books were very good. And mm-hmm. um, I think when it... Stuff that you pick up as a kid, right? Frankly, there's no explanation for it other than kids are just very curious. <laughs> and hmm. um, will, you know, kind of try anything that can keep them occupied for a few hours. So, um, well, it's available well, actually, on Amazon. Let's see. Okay. Well, how much? <laughs> I would hope. Uh, my phone is being slow, but anyway. Fifteen sixty-five. Okay, it's still by not... new. Wow. Okay. New PHP for the web. Yeah. PHP, PHP for, for the, the web. web. Visual Quick Start Guide. Larry Oman. Okay. I wonder how many editions that book has been through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Twenty sixteen published. Yeah. Oh, okay. 2016, okay. That's Interesting. not too bad. Interesting. But, uh, yeah. I think we we have run extremely long, but I it's, it's fine. I mean, who this said is two episodes, time limit? basically. Yeah. yeah. Should we split it into two episodes? Or? We could try, yeah. We could. We could. Yeah. I don't know if we have a natural yeah. breaking point. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think uh, that's, all, that's all we have for this week, I guess. And then uh, next week, we can... <sighs> I don't know. Talk about if, bugs. If this, uh, talk assassin about bugs. bugs or something. Yeah. All right. I don't know. I, I mean, uh, to be fair, I, I, I am mm-hmm. not an assassin bug expert. I know an assassin bug expert. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, if there's... Uh, let me go and see if there's any interesting news in the in the, in in the, the world of assassin world bugs. That we, can, we can... Yeah. That we could talk about. I well. had a prof. I had a professor in, in college who told us one of his colleagues 
used to make fun of the classics department by saying, hmm. what's new in the world of classics? <laughs> very yeah. good. Anyway, so very this is yeah, this is episode 5 slash 6 of Monkey Mind. Um, you can find the show notes at monkeymind.xyz slash 005. Uh, if there is no 6, we'll just skip 006. I don't know. I, have, I will find out in editing, I guess. 5.1 um, and 5.2. Yeah, or something like that. And um, I, I guess um, we now have one, two, three. We now have like four to five unpublished episodes. So uh, I, I guess by the time I release this, it won't be like see you next week, but see you whenever. All right. Yeah. Ciao. Okay. Ciao. <laughs>